The Sydney Opera House, which celebrated its 50th anniversary last year, is a lot of things. Apart from being a dedicated place for the performance of music and theatre, it is a feat of architecture, the building that defines the world's image of this continent. A myth, a drama, and a story of failure and success. As author Helen Pitt recounts, former Prime Minister Paul Keating, as a 16-year-old unionist, had been present for Paul Robeson's free performance to the civil and civic workers on the Opera House's construction site in 1960. Keating, an arts lover, decades later said, Sydney was tapped on the shoulder of a rainbow when it got its amazing opera house. He called it, without any shadow of a doubt, the greatest building of the 20th century and one of the greatest of all history. For Pitt and for many others, the opera house is what turned Sydney from a town into an international city. But most of the stories, including the dramas of the building of the Sydney Opera House, focus on the trials and tribulations of architects, politicians, sometimes performers, journalists and celebrities. Some romantic tributes are paid to the achievements of the construction workers, but these are usually skirted over and their industrial disputes treated as nuisances. By contrast, John Wallace, a former steward for the Mechanical Stages site at the Opera House from the AMWU, and Joe Owens, an organiser from the New South Wales Builders Labourers Federation, provided background that is otherwise missing in the context of the early 1970s, by which time work was running several years late. There was poor planning when pricing the contracts, which led to layoffs. There was messy and incompetent management. The most significant decisions that impacted the project taking place off-site and different workers were paid highly uneven rates of pay. These problems and more led to industrial disputes during a period of high union membership compared with today. In this week's episode of our Music and Politics mini-series, we talk to Erin Madal about the course of the disputes and what lessons we can take from how they played out. Erima is a member of Solidarity, a WARFI, and a Maritime Union of Australia member and delegate. In 2023, to mark the 50th anniversary of the Opera House's completion, Erima wrote an article on this topic in Solidarity magazine, and we're pleased to have her joining us for this episode in person. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm Tammy Gadir, and I'm recording this episode with Erima on unceded Gadigal land in Redfern, Sydney. Welcome, Erima. Thanks, Tammy. So, many people living here on Gadigal land know that the Sydney Opera House was completed in 1973. But its construction actually started much, much earlier, in 1959. Can you give us a sense of the industrial context at the start and end points of the Opera House construction? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, this was a 13-year project, which is, you know, a long time historically. And, you know, if you think back on that 
uh, period of history. People think of the late 60s and the early 70s as a time of radicalism. And that was also true of the workers' movement. It's like it was a high point of industrial struggle, of strike days in Australia. It was a time when the Builders Labourers Federation that you know you mentioned was involved in this dispute they were putting bans on destruction of low-income housing they were saving areas of um, you know greenland uh, and bushland in sydney Um, yeah and really kind of radicalizing the workers movement taking up all kinds of issues around indigenous rights the war in vietnam gay liberation and things like that if you if you compare that to the late 50s it was a very different situation workers were still under the draconian penal powers which you know criminalized unions much like today actually for taking industrial action a lot of the 60s were under the conservative menzies government and in 1969 those penal powers were smashed through a general strike and following that you had this kind of upsurge of struggle as workers sought to you know catch up for that sort of decade of repressed paying conditions so there was a big strike surge there was also a big surge in inflation so that was actually a lot of the context that led in the early 70s the workers on the opera house felt that the pricing contracts that had been set set at the beginning no longer reflected the cost of living and they really wanted to push their wages up That's very relevant because it sounds like most of the struggle that really kicked off didn't happen until toward the end of the project. So 1972 um, was when a lot of the really major disputes happened. Can you describe what happened at this time among the construction workers on the site? There's a few parts to the story which, you know, I've sort of actually divided up into, you know, Act 1, Act 2 and Act three, if we're, you know, talking about performances on the Opera House. But the background to this, you know, as I said, was, you know, the repressed wages. There was also a lot of issues with micromanagement. So part of the reason the project actually took so long was that, you know, there was a really bureaucratic kind of process of different layers of management, many different companies had contracts on the site, budget was blowing out you know a lot of the architectural decisions needed a lot of engineering work and all these sorts of things meant that actually management were constantly stopping the job at the same time every day there'd be two or three small disputes that the workers would walk off the job for Uh, they'd often win those disputes but they were losing pay every time and there was a real sense of frustration and a bit of a showdown brewing and in early 1972 a new engineer arrived on the job and he's um, quoted by Joe Owens and John Wallace, the two union leaders uh, down there as as telling the workers, you know, you give me a fair go and you'll get one, uh, which they interpreted as do as I tell you and you'll get a lolly. And so they they demanded uh, that they wanted the lolly first uh, to see what the reaction of management would be. And then they they realized that things were only going to go from bad to worse. So later that year, there was uh, a worker was sacked for um, just jokingly throwing like water over his over his mate on the job. And this worker was a fitter. So there were different kind of sections covered by different unions on the job. So the fitters were on the job. 
and they wanted to save their workmates job but they didn't want to walk off because actually the builders laborers were already on strike outside and so the fitters were essentially being paid for doing no work and just chilling on site so they started kind of throwing around alternative ideas for fighting back and this is where this idea of the work-in got thrown up and even at the time it was met with a bit of shock a bit of laughter Uh, But they actually debated it out in a meeting and decided to go ahead with it. So what that meant was that they were actually going to smuggle their co-worker back onto the job in the face of management. And, you know, for the next three days, he sort of flit around, popping up at meetings, popping up at Smoko, generally seen but unreachable by by the management running away from site security and this surprisingly this tactic actually worked so for three days later he was reinstated paid for the days of his work in and so that kind of I guess set off like this new new strategy new tactic that these workers had uh, to play with kind of going forward in the dispute. That tactic may not sound familiar to people today people would be familiar with you know striking walking off the job do people still do work-ins today that's a really interesting question um yeah it is a very original tactic i haven't like nothing comes to mind immediately in terms of in australia today but i think it's really instructive to look at how this tactic developed because not long after this particular worker's job was saved, a much bigger dispute unfolded on the site. And so this question of a work-in turned from something, you know, quite small scale to actually posing quite sharply the question of workers' control, which is a big, you know, a big feature of this struggle. It actually showed that workers can run the job themselves. They can do it um, much better, much more efficiently than managers in a lot of cases. And it was in a in a period, a historical period where the possibilities that workers could actually, you know, run the job, run society, and pose a real threat to the need, you know, for traditional kind of capitalist markets, capitalist management, and so on. That was really, really on the agenda in the seventies, not just in Australia actually, but you know, seventy three had the Chilean revolution that set up workers councils and I mentioned you know some of the other actions of the BLF as well so you know unfortunately that level of struggles definitely receded but we'd love to see it come back but just yeah just to kind of continue on with the story I guess so a few weeks after this incident with the sacked fitter you had you know a bigger dispute over wage inequality on the job between the fitters and the riggers and they put a black ban on the work done by fitters and this pretty much dragged the whole work site to a halt and the company retaliated by cancelling work for saturday uh, which would have come with you know nice penalty rates and told the workers they weren't needed and so this precipitated actually the the first mass work work in the workers decided you know, they met there in the morning at the gates, decided they were all going to go in and do the work anyway. They had to break into a toolbox in the opera house with a crowbar to get the tools. And they were quite anxious about, you know, safety as well, because they figured they're doing this work uh, without the approval of the supervisors 
um, so workers' compensation probably wouldn't cover them. And so there was, you know, a lot of a lot of considerations that went into this. But at the end of the day, you know, they had a meeting to review the day's events. Morale was very high. Everyone was feeling, you know, very stoked. And the managers had essentially been, you know, lurking in the background, watching this with, you know, confusion and indignation. Uh, and then the next day they came back and did the same thing again. And the company told the engineers not to cooperate with them. And so this meant that, you know, it was quite hard to actually do a lot of the meaningful tasks. So, you know, they didn't want to just be standing around. The union understood that would, you know, be pretty bad for discipline and for morale. And so they actually decided that if they couldn't do any more work, they'd dismantle the work they'd already done and do it again. Um, they were working on the on the revolving stages for the drama and opera theatres. The one time that they actually recognised the authority of management was when the managers came and spoke directly to their own elected foreman and said, are you the person to speak to if I want the job done? Mm-hmm. So rather than having company appointed foreman, they elected their own and they actually ran the whole site unpaid for three days. But of course, you know, the aim of this was to actually get management to recognise their work um, and, and, and pay them for it retrospectively, uh, which they did. But then this, this led on to further episodes in the struggle. At the end of the actions, workers won 48 hours pay for a 35-hour working week. Uh, they won the control over elections of foremen, as you talked about, generous redundancy payments, four weeks annual leave with a 25% loading and other things as well. And people listening to this today who may be in the process of their own industrial disputes or familiar with industrial disputes happening at the moment might think, hmm, that sounds like a pipe dream. That doesn't sound very possible in the current industrial landscape. Can you explain the arguments that workers made in favour of the 35-hour working week for 48 hours of pay? How could they justify that to their bosses? And how was it actually possible for them to finally win? Yeah, so there's quite a lot to sort of unpack in that question. I mean, I think one thing you notice is that a lot of these conditions that were won in the 70s, you know, annual leave with loading, four weeks annual leave with loading, you know, redundancy payments, these sort of things, you know, we're still living with the legacy of those struggles and actually a lot of those gains are beginning to be eroded. You think, you know, they won 35 hour weeks on construction sites in the 70s. There'd be construction workers dreaming of, you know, working weeks that short today. Um, And we certainly don't have our own elected um, foremen or for women on the job. So, you know, a lot of that, you know, those balance of class forces have gone against us. Union density is a lot lower, but we still, you know, we still live with a lot of those those victories. So a really, yeah, interesting part of the struggle actually was the assertion by the workforce that they could do 48 hours work in 35 hours. And that was the basis on which they argued for for pay parity like we want a shorter working week for the same amount of money and that was a lot of that actually came out of their own observation of the inefficiency of management the you know amount of you know bureaucratic um time wasting 
that went on. And part of the work in that I described was actually them proving this in practice. So, you know, taking things into their own hands also meant they got rid of like the demarcation between the trades. So, you know, usually it was very like strict builders, laborers do bricklaying or, you know, really kind of menial bottom of the rung jobs and then you have like the skilled tradespeople who did other kinds of work and then you had you know the engineers who may or may not kind of share their expertise well actually there was a lot of information sharing skill sharing everyone kind of mucking in together and getting rid of those like artificial barriers there also was a huge reduction in absenteeism and just like a general sense that people wanted to be at work that they really took pride over you know, their control of the job. They would have like meetings to like assess the struggle, but also assess the work and the efficiency of the work. And yeah, Joe Owens and um, John Wallace sort of described the mood as being like freed from years of hard labor in a prison. Like there was just this jubilant sense of excitement that they were taking things into their own hands and even the most, you know, unpopular tasks were kind of approached with, you know, enthusiasm and creativity. And so all of this actually dr- like dramatically increased the productivity of the work. And that was a big part of how they actually could win the 48 hours pay for 35 hours work. But yeah, in terms of how they actually won this, the f- sort of the final point of the struggle the the engineering company that they that they were working for McNamee Industries basically spat the dummy in 1972 and was like this is not worth our while like we can barely move without encountering some kind of strike some kind of picket some kind of work in and you know they were fed up with it you know letters of dismissal were handed out to all the workers by foreman who then went and got their own letters of dismissal And the whole site was left, you know, in a bit of a pickle about like who's actually going to finish these rotating stages. They had one year until scheduled opening. The Queen was booked to come over and open the Opera House. So there was also quite a strong sense of pressure on the government. And so the the workforce covered by, yeah, the two unions quite cleverly used this to their advantage to basically begin a campaign that the parent company Wagner Bureau would hire them. And the struggle at that point kind of leapt outside of the confines of the opera house. You know, they sent delegations to the the public works minister, to the governor general, to the opposition leader. They sat in the Wagner Bureau offices. Uh, They leafleted visitors to the, the opera house site. And at one point, they even sent people down from the from the BLL, BLF offices to scout the site and find out whether a new contractor had been found yet. And they discovered that the police had locked the site shut and put guards out out the front, and they were very affronted by this, you know, that being their their work site. So they scaled the fence and continued the work in from inside. Which, just reflecting on that, I just think it's so telling about the morale and the sense of struggle there that people are scaling the fence to get in and work rather than scaling the fence to escape having to work. And so for a few weeks, the engineering company and the government kind of, you know, tried to push the blame onto each other. 
um, eventually a new contractor was found and this is when they all sort of sat down and these victories that you're talking about were negotiated where they actually won the pay increase won the redundancy won the annual leave and won you know election of their own uh, supervisors and that that happened on May Day at the time electricians were on strike out the gate and so they didn't actually have to start work for another 16 days and that was all paid for Are there any aspects of the industrial actions that Opera House workers took that you'd like to draw our attention to? Yeah, one of the things I really liked reading about in... um, So I've mentioned Wallace and Owens a few times from the BLF and the AMWU. They actually wrote a pamphlet, um, which is, you know, a really great sort of first-hand historical account of this struggle. And they talk about the really important role of, you know, rank and file democracy as part of how the struggle unfolded. Um, So every single day they would convene at the gates at 7.30 in the morning. They would, you know, assess the day before. They would revisit any decisions that they'd made in the day's um, final meetings and basically make sure everyone was, like, on the same page before they sort of went in to, to kick off, you know, that day's events. And there's a quote here that I liked from their pamphlet They say the meetings were always informal, no strict rules of debate operated. In fact, meetings were more of a discussion group where everyone could have a say without feeling overawed by the occasion. And I just think that's important, yeah, to kind of draw out because, you know, we can hear about these historical struggles and not necessarily have a good sense of, you know, the ins and and the outs, but, you know, actually realising how you know, kind of intimately involved, you know, every single person on the job was, um, that there was no decision too small to be debated out, that there was a real sense of of control and decision-making power amongst every single person who, you know, walked on and off that site every day. You know, that is a really critical part of the struggle that we need to rebuild in Australia like so often unions are thought of as these institutions kind of outside of us who you know service us or provide lawyers or you know might be able to come in and do something but really you know we need to rebuild that sense that we are the union we can make these decisions Um, and I think this is just such a great you know model of how they actually did that. In our last Sound of Solidarity episode of 2023 we interviewed Jeff Sparrow about his book on the life of the singer Paul Robeson and the book begins with Robeson's performance very aptly on Benelong Point. Sparrow writes, in 1960 construction workers were not respectable. Concert halls did not cater to labourers whom few considered deserving of fine music or sophisticated entertainments. So with this gesture at Benelong Point, by transforming, if only for a lunch hour, their work site into the musical venue it would eventually become, Robeson makes a statement characteristic of his life and career. You aren't, he says to them, simply tools for others. You're not beasts suitable only for hoisting and carrying, even if that's the role you've been allotted. You're entitled to culture, to music and art, and all of life's good things. And one day you shall have them. And with that moving sentiment, what do you think, Erima, are the most important lessons that workers and their supporters can take from 
this struggle at the construction site of the greatest building of the 20th century. Yeah, that's such a great quote and it really sums up the mood of the times and the high point of struggle, you know, where all those barriers begin to break down about who can make music, who's cultured, who's entitled to culture. And I think it speaks so much to, you know, some of the points you brought up right at the beginning you know, we're talking about the 50th anniversary of the Opera House. You know, there's cel- there's been celebrations last year. We hear about, you know, the Danish architect or the English composer or the, you know, New South Wales premier and, and their kind of involvement in the building of the Opera House. And yet so little is said about the people who actually built the Opera House with, you know, with their hands, with their bodies, with their sweat with their with their struggles and you know it's it's a it's a classic example of you know what Marx talked about the hidden realm of production that we can talk about the building of this incredible feat of architecture without acknowledging the people who actually built it this is a struggle you know that we have to keep in the spotlight we have to keep you know center stage you know of our memory of Sydney, of our memory of working class struggle, because there are many, many people who would like to bury this history and for us to forget all about it. But it represents, you know, if only a glimpse, like it was quite a short lived struggle that the whole thing only, you know, unfolded in about a month, but it actually showed, you know, what we in solidarity talk about all the time, that we could run society ourselves from the bottom up, that actually so much of the time, you know, the bosses, the companies, uh, the corporations, they're an obstacle. They're actually an obstacle to doing things efficiently, to, you know, learning and spreading our skills. And so often, you know, we all think at work, you know, I could do the job better than the boss like most people you ask you know feel like the boss is you know an obstacle really doesn't understand half of what goes on on the ground but people don't necessarily draw the conclusion from that that we could run the place ourselves we could run society ourselves but that period of history was a time where those questions were posed quite sharply like I mentioned you know, the Chilean revolution in 1973, you had had, you know, the largest ever strike in history to date in 1968 in France. There were similar kind of workplace occupations going on in the UK that a lot of, you know, Australian trade unionists would know about. And so these discussions were really on the agenda. Like there was actually a follow-up conference in the Easter of 1973 called Workers' Control Conference. So there was an attempt to actually generalise this from a specific, you know, union tactic into something a little more broad. But, you know, in a lot of ways, there actually was also the lack of politics and the lack of organisation to spread it beyond something that was simply fighting for reform. So once they kind of won those gains that we talked about, things kind of wrapped up I think you know organizations like solidarity and socialist organizations would actually be needed to spread that into something much much broader where we start to pose the political question of, of control quite sharply and in a world that we're living in today with you know run, runaway climate change with runaway inflation uh, with the threat of war with you know the absolute atrocities we're seeing in Palestine like I think a lot of people probably rightly feel like we could do a much better job of running this society ourselves and we need to rebuild those struggles and from from the ground up 
you know, this is part of our history that we all, all should know about as inspiration to do that. That's a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Erima, for joining us on The Sound of Solidarity. And we will keep those lessons in mind going forward. Thanks. Thanks.